Hello and welcome to the PyData podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Wiecki, and I'm very excited that you're joining me on this very first episode. The reason for me to start this podcast is that, probably like most of you, I really enjoy listening to podcasts myself. And that, coupled with my deep interest in all things data science, including the PyData ecosystem, based statistics, and machine learning, I thought it would be really interesting to bring on well-known guests from the PyData world and ask them about what they're working on and their perspective on things. And also have a podcast where we don't shy away from more advanced topics. When thinking about my first guest, who better to kick things off with than my good friend Chris Fonnesbeck. Chris and I have worked for many years on the PyMC project, and of course that is something that we will talk about in the beginning, starting with diving into basic statistics, probabilistic programming, and PyMC, all the way to PyMC4 and what we have in store there and what the current status of that project is. Then we'll dive more into Chris's background, where he started as a biologist and becoming a professor at Vanderbilt University for biostatistics, and now works as a data scientist for the New York Yankees in sports analytics. So you can already tell that it's a really interesting background that he has, and he really shares all his wisdom that he gained through the decades of experience he has in data science with us on this podcast. So without further delay, I give you the podcast episode that I call Probabilistic Programming, What Is It Good For? Chris, thank you so much for being the very first guest on my new podcast. Thanks, Thomas. I'm very glad to be here. I'm honored to be the the May, on the maiden voyage, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so probably our both favorite topics to chat about is probabilistic programming. And one thing that I often struggle about when talking to other data scientists who might have might not have that background is to sort of condense down what probabilistic programming is in intuitively understandable terms and also like why they should care um, about it in the first place. So uh, yeah, what is what has been your best elevator pitch in that regard? So when when I um, think about probabilistic programming, I'm I'm really what I'm doing is is using a different language for uh, talking about Bayesian inference. So it is essentially Bayesian inference, um, uh, where you know the focus is obviously on the um, computational aspect of it. So it's the implementation in software of uh, Bayesian statistics. What what is Bayesian statistics? Oh, so we're going to, we're going to bring it all the way back there. <laughs> Let's so, start at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's, you know, that's, uh, the, the first five minutes of most of my tutorials, which is what is Bayesian inference. And, um, you know, I like, I always liked Andrew Gelman's definition that I think I can re recite uh, without looking it up. It's, uh, uh, Bayesian statistics is, uh, using probability distributions, uh, to build probability models for obtaining inference on things that are unknown, things that we care about. And so you're, you're using a, pro a set of probability distributions to build a model. And, and so everything in Bayesian inference is uh, characterized by a probability distribution. And what the distributions do is uh, it allows you to quantify the uncertainty in all of those unknown all of those unknown entities, and those can be really anything that you don't 
that you haven't observed. So they can be abstract things like uh, coefficients in a regression model. Uh, they can be observations that you haven't seen, so missing data. They can be future observations that you're trying to predict. Uh, they can be hyperparameters in the machine learning model. And so anything you don't know, uh, you just slap a probability distribution on it and add it into your model. And that's the kind of the powerful thing about Bayesian inference is that, uh, you know, any provided that you have the data to estimate it, you can include almost anything in your model. They're very flexible. And also they're very modular. Um, so each, each component has its own, if you like, sub-model that's a distribution. And then the um, kind of the trick or the art to the whole Bayesian modeling exercise is how those Lego blocks connect together in a way that makes sense and can produce uh, valid results. And so if you're doing probabilistic programming, yeah. you're implementing that stuff in, in software. And so, you know, to do probabilistic programming, you need a probabilistic programming language. And really all that is, is a, any programming language that has probability distributions encoded into it. And, and if you go deeper than that, it's really any, any language that has a random number generator. Because if you've got a random number generator, you can, you can generate almost any random value from any distribution. And so, so strictly speaking, almost any modern language is a probabilistic programming language, but the things that we the sort of creature comforts and sort of high-level components that we build on top of that make some languages better than others uh, for doing probabilistic programming. Yeah, I really like that um, definition. And um, so, and also the fact that it is, as you say, a generative framework where you think about your problem in a different way, um, basically from the hidden cause that you can't observe but would like to infer down to the how the data that you have was uh, was generated. And then you can sort of flip that around with Bayesian inference and say, given these uh, th these observed events, what are the most likely causes to have generated them? Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, Bayesian inference used to be called inverse probability because you're working sort of backwards like that. I didn't even know that. That's really interesting. The other angle that a lot of people come from, especially in data science, is uh, not from statistics, but rather from machine learning. What have you found to be like the stumbling blocks for people or like the sort of the, the, the golden nuggets for them in this approach if they are more used to like scikit-learn sort of uh, work? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, the differences between what you're currently doing and um, Bayesian inference or probabilistic programming sort of depends on what you were doing before. And, and typically folks come from one or of two backgrounds. One is a machine learning background where maybe they were computer scientists or engineers uh, or, uh, or business professionals. And, and then the other uh, group come, maybe comes from a statistical, a, a traditional classical statistics background where you're doing, um, you know, uh, hypothesis testing and ANOVAs and regressions. And um, the good news is that you can still do all of those things if you adopt uh, Bayesian inference. It's not a different set of models, but the type of the way that you implement them would be different as, as a Bayesian. You kind of view the world differently. And so what that what it essentially implies is, is that you're um, and you're, you're building those models using probability distributions. And so, like I said before, 
you know, everything you don't know in your model, you, you add a probability distribution to it to kind of reflect your knowledge about the true value of, of, of that quantity. And so if you're a machine learner, what are the unknowns there? Well, they're typically hyperparameters, but then they're also the predictions that you make. And if you're building a model, like you said, in scikit-learn, um, you, you, you don't have the notion of uncertainty in those parameters. They, they kind of start at some random or arbitrary place, and then they hopefully converge to something close to their true or best value. And um, you don't really have a, a notion when you're done as to kind of how good that estimate is and how it might improve if you had more data. If, if you make that into a probabilistic model, you would have a, you know, a distribution of you know, whatever it is, length scales or scale parameters, um, and a distribution around what your prediction of some new value might be. And, uh, and, and so you have a really, the, the nice thing about it is it gives you uh, a really good uh, um, estimate of how much you know about your entire system and um, where it might benefit for, from more information or a slightly different model, uh, for example, because you can sometimes get a very false sense of security building traditional machine learning uh, models. Yeah, so that is also what I think is one of the key benefits of probabilistic programming compared with machine learning, where machine learning is often very data-hungry, especially things like deep learning, where you need terabytes of data to train uh, these models with millions of parameters. In a way, a probabilistic model is uh, like a almost like a handcrafted neural network where you sort of tailor your model with expert knowledge to the particular problem that you're seeking an answer to. And the benefit of doing that is, well, one thing you can sort of tell the model like certain spaces are just not worth exploring. So you sort of initialize it and set it on the right path if you do have that prior knowledge. And once you do that, the model requires way less data to give you meaningful answers. And even if you do have lots of data, if the structure you incorporate is correct, then it actually will give you even better answers. Uh, so yeah, that I think uh, is, is also just a really powerful concept. Yeah, that, and that really is one of the other defining characteristics of Bayesian inference or probabilistic programming, and that is uh, the use of, of prior distributions and prior information. And, uh, you know, back before probabilistic programming was a thing and it was just statisticians doing Bayesian inference, this was considered by a large swath of the uh, statistics world as being a kind of a drawback, um, a handicap of, of the uh, whole approach, uh, this notion of using prior information because you know, as scientists, we're supposed to be uh, objective and clearly adding, you know, prior information that didn't come from your data um, was subjective. And, um, you know, happily, I think most of the world doesn't look at things that way anymore um, because, A, all statistics and all analysis is subjective. We, you know, make all the choices in a machine learning model or a traditional statistical model about which data to collect and which models to use and what to test and what not to test. Um, what we're doing as, as Bayesians is we're essentially incorporating all the information, you know, that we have. And uh, sometimes that's nothing and our, our priors don't, don't contribute a lot to the model and that's fine. Uh, but where we do have information about the system, either from, you know, previous studies or previous experiments, 
but also just knowledge about your system. We know that variances have to be positive. So why are we, uh, you know, allowing our variances to be negative? Um, or if you're a biologist, you may know that, uh, you know, human height can only be this small and this tall. And so you may as well uh, have a prior distribution on height that is within the biological constraints of what you're studying. It makes sense to do that. And so, you're, yeah, your model will perform better and you'll generally get uh, better inference because you're bringing all the information to bear on the problem and not just kind of an, a, a subset of it. So, so viewing it as a constraint like you were is a, is a really good idea. But more generally, you just think of it as part of the structure of your model. And, uh, and with just like any other model checking, you want to see if those are sound assumptions. It's another modeling assumption. Uh, and, and so you want to always test what your priors are, are doing. Uh, but it's not really considered a drawback. It's actually a, you know, it's a, it's a positive aspect and a, often a useful aspect. You know, how do you incorporate prior information or expert opinion or constraints generally into your model? Yeah, I completely agree. The fact that priors and uh, the fact that it's subjective is so salient is a bonus because it makes it explicit, like what are the assumptions going into this model and then mm -hmm. allows us to talk about it, right? And be like, well, um, I don't agree with those modeling assumptions. Maybe we should try things differently and then we can try a different model and see what that gives us. And right. the other thing which I also find really interesting is when you actually get down to constructing a Bayesian model, this whole uh, philosophical debate almost takes a back seat where just by doing it and starting with some priors and then looking at the results, you see like, oh, like why did it do this? And then you realize, oh, well, this makes no sense because of this thing I know about this problem that I didn't incorporate into the model, which causes the model to just like go completely in the wrong direction. And then I can go back and revise the model, include it, um, and, and get and get better inference. So yeah, this, uh, this whole notion sort of, I think often resolves itself when you actually get down to doing things. Yeah, that, for sure. And, and that's something that machine learners should be familiar with this, this idea of iterating on your model. You don't just, you know, build a random forest model once and you're done. You, uh, look at the output, you validate it and you may go back and you know, change something about it. And that's no different when you're doing probabilistic programming. So I've been really curious um, to hear more about uh, PyMC, like how you got started with it. So uh, that's definitely how we know each other. So I started on PyMC2 and built a package on top of that and some sort of sent the occasional pull request. And then um, we really started working together when John Salvatier built PyMC3 and then helping get that across the finish line and basically, yeah, helping out to building it out to that stage where it is right now. Uh, but actually, before even before PyMC2, I have no knowledge really of, of what, what's happening there. So I'd just be curious to hear basically that, that the, a piece of history on PyMC. Sure. Yeah. So um, it, I guess, dates back to the early 2000s when I was uh, in the middle of my PhD program. And, uh, you know, in those, so these are early 2000s, sort of 2002, 2003, um, if you were a Bayesian then, um, you were typically either A, rolling your own model, uh, so you had to be a good programmer as well as a good statistician, and, um, and you know, you typically write it in something like C or Fortran, so somebody's uh, 
MCMC model would often be 10,000 lines of, of Fortran, uh, which is what I re received once. Um, or if you're like me and more of an applied user, my background is in, in biology. I have three biology degrees, uh, so I'm not an, a computer scientist or a statistician. Um, at that time, the go-to tool was a package called WinBugs, uh, where uh, Win meant that you had to run it on Windows. And the bugs part is, is an acronym, a kind of a, a poor acronym called Bayesian Inference, using Gibbs sampling bugs. And, you know, I wanted to build models in Python. I was learning Python uh, at the time. And so, you know, I, I tinkered and I built, built some tools um, ostensibly for my own use. I didn't, never intended for anybody to use it besides myself and maybe other people in, in my lab. And uh, so PyMC1, um, I wrote essentially to, to build a model for a paper we were writing uh, on uh, optimization of, of duck harvests, actually. And uh, so, <laughs> so decision analysis, sequential decision analysis in a, in a Bayesian framework. And, uh, you know, there was, that was before the days of, of GitHub, but we did have a thing called SourceForge, which I, I think still exists. It uh, wasn't quite as robust of a platform or a flexible a platform, but it, what it did the key thing, which was to make your code available to, you know, anybody that was uh, uh, courageous enough to download it and try to run it on their machine. And so I posted it on, on SourceForge, and, um, you know, the, the only thing I really take credit for with the whole PyMC endeavor is, is essentially having a good idea. Um, and... Uh, if you can get that idea out there and other people can see it and, and, and improve upon it, then, then you start getting something that's, uh, that's, that's special. And that's exactly what happened. We had, you know, other people contribute code and, uh, and, and contribute to uh, subsequent versions of the software. And in particular to, to other scientists, one, uh, Anand Patil, who at the time was uh, a PhD student at UC Santa Cruz doing evolutionary biology, and uh, David Heward, who was a graduate student in Quebec, a natural resource, I think, student. Uh, the three of us put together PyMC2, uh, which was far better, right, because they were way better programmers uh, than I was, uh, better statisticians, too. And, um, you know, PyMC2 was something that people could sort of widely use and easily install in the machine. And uh, the thing that made PyMC um, sort of one of the, one of the hallmarks of, of PyMC development back then were these huge, uh, impressive, but ephemeral contributions by various developers. So people would show up for a few months, typically students, and they'd contribute a ton of code, really good code, and then they would go away and you'd never hear from them again. Uh, and, you know, my job essentially was managing all of these contributions and, and making sure that they all fit together. And in fact, Anand and David and I have never met in person, uh, which is amazing considering how long it's been. And uh, happily now with PyMC3, um, you know, I kind of handed the keys over to John Salvatier at the time so he could implement his idea, his crazy idea of doing gradient-based inference when he didn't want to kind of modify PyMC2. He wanted to start from scratch. So we said, well, here's a blank canvas. Let's rewrite the whole thing from scratch. And uh, the nice thing about PyMC3 is, you know, aside from you and I and John, and John was one of these ephemeral developers, right? We, we haven't heard uh, from him in a long, long time. 
uh, but what a great contribution he made. But since then, we, we now have kind of a stable group of recurring contributors that maintain, not only maintain the code, but also, you know, uh, contribute to the community and answer questions on discourse pages and build websites and write documentation, all this other stuff. And so now we've got rather than three, just three people, we've got a dozen or more regular contributors that, uh, that all are part of a community. And that's what we didn't have before. So at some point it grows to the point where you have, you know, this nice robust community that is self-sustaining that uh, I don't know what the number is to reach that point, some, some value greater than three, I guess. But, uh, and, and now we're in a place where we can advance and do a lot more things, have spinoff projects like RVs. And, and then, you know, when we embark upon the next major version, like we're trying to do now with PyMC4, um, we have a lot of resources, human resources to do that. Yeah. And the thing that it really was the inflection point for a lot of, lot of this is the Slack channel that we created. So that was just like a, a random idea where we're just like, oh, let's just like get a couple of people of us in a chat room. And I think that is really what fused us together and like got people engaged. And uh, then we started also meeting in, in real life. So it basically moved it from like this uh, GitHub repository where people would show up if they uh, like felt like doing something and then would disappear into the internet where they came yeah. from, uh, where now it's just like people staying in touch and uh, just becoming friends really. And that I think has really just added a whole another dimension to open source development, this sense of community and, and friendship and just like building really cool things with people you like. And and we do have that really great team, I think. So yeah, that has been just uh, one of the many unexpected benefits of uh, open source development. Absolutely. And that, you know, it does, it is easier in 2019 to do those sorts of things. And you, you, you know, people did do it in the nineties and early two thousands, right? Linux and all that, that was all remotely collaborative uh, work, but you know, it was very hard to do that. I'm sure by mailing lists essentially. Right. And um, you know, concurrent versioning system and whatever was available then. Um, so this is a case where tools and technology make these sorts of projects you know, a lot easier. There are a lot of free tools or at least cheap tools. And the big one is communication, right? Um, although the funny thing now is that we, you know, with PyMC, uh, we, we, uh, we derive a lot of productivity and utility out of meeting in person rather than doing the remote stuff. So the most of it is remote, but uh, recently we've had sort of developer summits where we've been able to meet in person for a few days. And, and those have really been helpful for pushing the project forward, but also building the community a little bit more as well. Yeah. And uh, shout out to Google at this point for sponsoring these events, uh, which really like allowed us to make so much progress on PyMC4. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people would be really curious to hear about like PyMC4, sort of what, uh, yeah, what, what it's based on and, and how the development is going. If you want the, the origin story there, Right. It was the fact that uh, a little over a year ago, um, the Theano project upon which PyMC3 was built um, essentially shut its doors and, and ceased uh, further development. And, uh, you know, day. that kind of, yeah, very sad day, um, you know, because Theano is a very de dependable and uh, stable and uh, performant platform upon which to build a probabilistic programming language. And um, so we, you know, we spent 
what, the better part of a, a year or at least nine months assessing the sort of candidate alternatives for the next major version. And we eventually uh, decided on, you know, a TensorFlow, uh, partly because of, you know, the technological advantages of doing that, but also because, as you mentioned, the support that, you know, Google offered us. Uh, and, and it's been a very collaborative effort uh, with uh, members of, of Google, particularly the TensorFlow probability team. So do, yeah, I think development so far has been slow and difficult, uh, but very interesting, right? Because we're trying to ma- maintain the high-level uh, API that PyMC3 enjoys that I think everybody's pretty happy with uh, while swapping out a, a back end. And it's, it's not as simple as swapping out a back end. We really do have to rewrite it from scratch and, and, uh, and adopt some of the idioms that uh, are... Uh, made available to us by TensorFlow, but the the you know the, the main challenge is, is that TensorFlow moves so quick so quickly itself. You know, uh, particularly now we're we're at this transition from TensorFlow one to TensorFlow two. You know, we were used to Theano that just didn't change for for months at a time, and partly was because it was a very mature product, but also as we learned, you know, it was you know there are fewer and fewer people innovating on that platform. And so the advantage from our point of view is that it was easy to build on top of because it didn't change very much. But, you know, now the exciting, it's sort of exciting and challenging and scary in that we're building on a new platform that is itself constantly changing. Uh, But it's exciting in that, you know, we constantly get new features that uh, to play with that will hopefully, you know, make PyMC4 a better tool. So things are still in the embryonic stage. Um, and uh, a couple of our key de- developers, uh, you know, particularly uh, Maxim Kucherov, uh, one of our Russian students who's uh, been a contributor for a long, long time already, um, had a really nice idea about a, 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 an API. And so it's a matter of implementing that and uh, testing it. And, you know, you know, at some point we may throw that out and start again. And, you know, we don't know what, what's working yet, but uh, we're, I think we're pretty close to having an, an alpha release that people can download and play with. And, and I think once we get to that point, we'll really um, move things forward because we'll start getting feedback from people and, and hopefully some new, you know, new, new contributors. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I completely agree with that assessment. And uh, the other thing that I found really interesting, and that was definitely a conscious decision um, that we made, is by not having to rebuild this sort of middle layer of probability distributions and inference algorithms um, that we had with Theano, right? Theano just provided the mathematical tools and the graph building and the compilation, but then uh, there was no normal distribution and nothing to build, like no concept of random variables. So John had to build all of that by himself with TensorFlow because it had TensorFlow probability and we had a good relationship with them. That allowed us to basically just focus on that top layer. And for me, that was always uh, also where PyMC3 sort of uh, was had its strongest point on just providing really nice user-friendly API and uh, just building that out and making it as user-friendly as possible. So then treating tensor prob- probability as this middle layer that is not focused on 
usability, but rather on like just scale and, um, and, and expressivity and uh, the fact that you can use it in research and build all kinds of crazy models. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'd be fine with just building a, a subset of models, not having not being quite as flexible, but rather being more user friendly and just focusing on that. And now I th- feel like that is actually really paying off where it's been a lot of work in really understanding TensorFlow and eager mode and how to build things on that uh, in that new framework. But once we do, now all of a sudden we are close to being on par with PyMC3 in terms of what it allows you to do. So we have wrapped uh, very simply all of the TensorFlow probability distributions, which are all the ones we had in PyMC3, and where we just plug in the nut sampler provided by TensorFlow probability. And those two pieces together allow you to basically have 90% of the functionality uh, that you had with PyMC3. So I think that alpha is indeed uh, like something we should and, and could push out fairly soon. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I hope the other thing that I hope that this becomes is a platform for uh, prototyping, uh, particularly different, you know, different methods, uh, different statistical methods and different models. Um, because the nice thing about having this close association with uh, TensorFlow probability is that you could use PyMC's, you know, higher level API and uh, the fact that you're you know, writing most of this in, in Python uh, to develop uh, new methods and uh, eventually, if they become useful and successful, push them down the stack and embed them uh, more closely to TensorFlow probability to, to become more performant. And so, you know, that may be kind of a pattern that you see where, um, you know, new innovations start at PyMC3 and, or sorry, excuse me, PyMC4, and, uh, and then they get kind of pushed down. Because the more that you, you let, as you said, let TensorFlow probability do, uh, uh, the kind of the better the model will perform, but it's it's kind of hard to use on a day to day basis, which is what PyMC4 is is supposedly providing, which is this higher level user and developer API. Yeah, and what's cool is that this can also work the other way around, and when we have seen that, where advancements in TensorFlow probability just make their way into PyMC4, mm-hmm. like variational inference. Uh, which we haven't really explored, but I know there's a lot of work there existing already or Gaussian processes. Um, so, yeah, just like standing on the shoulders of giants and anything that they add to TensorFlow probability, we'll get. And one of the really cool things that uh, we just started recently exploring is also uh, sampling on the GPU. Mm-hmm. And that was already possible in PyMC3, and just recently I've seen some benchmarks that show like, well, yeah, if you do have lots of data sampling on the uh, or having a model run on the GPU to be more accurate in PyMC3 really does give you a nice speed up. Uh, but the problem there always was that we still had our samplers, the nut sampler written in Python. So there was always this call overhead um, between the CPU sampler and the GPU model lock probability. And with PyMC4, because they write everything in TensorFlow, including the nut sampler, you can just take the whole graph, which incorporates the model and the inference algorithm in yeah this one mega graph, compile all of that and run the whole thing on the GPU. And that should really give you amazing speed up. So that is something that I think will be really interesting. Yeah. And I'm also uh, interested in where variational inference um, will come into play. It, it, you know, we developed it a fair bit in PyMC3, and that was one of the great things about it. You know, people like Max would come along and 
and you know read an archive paper of a new variational inference implementation, uh, you know normalizing flows or something like that. And two weeks later, it would be in PyMC3. So it was a nice way. You know you could actually try out some of these new methods that you're reading in the literature, and it, it's nice to have tools that makes that very easy. I was wondering, you know, just to throw a question back at you, what what you view kind of the landscape being in, in maybe five years or so, are we still going to be doing MCMC or are we going to uh, have variational inference be just as reliable uh, yet, you know, easier to implement because you're doing optimization rather than sampling or, um, or is, you know, is Hamiltonian Monte Carlo still going to be the go-to method? I don't know what, uh, if you look into the crystal ball, if you see anything uh, in terms of long-term trends in probabilistic programming. Right. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think definitely one where we will see some very exciting developments. The underlying theme that I think is emerging is that now with these tools that really focus on scalability, because it's all just one big TensorFlow graph and you can run it on GPU and TPU, is that it all of a sudden allows us to build models of uh, like size and um, also so first of all, model complexity, so huge models trained on huge amounts of data, something that just wasn't possible before, I think that will allow some, for some really interesting things. So it might turn out that actually, well, that's not all that useful. Um, people don't want to build like crazy, complex, huge models. Or it could turn out, well, that is really the sweet spot where all of a sudden now um, you can build machine learning models that have been possible today. There's really interesting research going on in Bayesian deep learning uh, so I think that is really so we we at the start of that chapter and uh, yeah difficult to say where that is going to go. Um, in terms of like the the variation inference, the if I had to like provide a prediction there, I would say that variational inference will stay in the domain of more machine learning. Like if you have yeah a Bayesian neural network, and you, we will continue to sample with uh, like more statistical models where you do care about your inference and you look at your posterior distributions and they have meaning associated to them. So that would be my best guess. But what, uh, yeah, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the, you'll, you'll still have a problem when you're doing variational inference dealing with models with lots of parameters and you know what happens in high dimensions. Uh, that's one thing you do learn uh, delving into Hamiltonian Monte Carlo is you know what what models are doing when they're when you when they become very large in terms of you know size of the model rather than size of the data and the sort of unpredictable and nasty things that can happen uh, if you're not careful and that's kind of what you lose when you go to the to variational approximations and once you start making your variational approximations more realistic by you know being you know, having a, a full covariance matrix and things like that, then it becomes more computationally intensive and you sort of start to lose the, the advantage of doing that. But yeah, you are seeing a lot of, you know, I've noticed uh, other packages for doing probabilistic programming, taking advantage of the GPU architectures and, and uh, allowing us to build models that we weren't able to before. One that comes to mind is uh, uh, PyTorch has a nice, Gaussian process implementation called GPyTorch that now allows you to build very large exact G, uh, Gaussian processes. So in, where in the past you had to do sort of sparse approximations uh, that were kind of unsatisfying, you can now do 
essentially Gaussian processes with big data. And the way that it gets away with that is that you can parallelize it on the GPU using black box matrix matrix methods. Um, and that, may, that opens up, you know, huge possibilities for, for those sorts of methods. And, um, and, and it's nice also seeing, you know, uh, continual advances in Hamiltonian Monte Carlo, which is the main tool that PyMC and Stan and other probabilistic programming languages use. Uh, the adva- advances that you're seeing there in, in making uh, sampling more robust and, and also more, more performant. Um, because MCMC typically, historically, doesn't scale well with uh, the size of your data set. Yeah. I want to use this uh, discussion as a uh, jumping off point to also bring in your uh, your background from your current job and how you use it there. So you have been a professor at Vanderbilt, or so you still are uh, in some capacity, and now moved to industry working for the New York Yankees uh, doing sports analytics, right? Yeah, I was a, I was a, an academic. So I, when I um, got my PhD, um, I was initially a uh, marine mammal biologist uh, for a few years. So I worked for the state of Florida at the Florida Marine Research Institute um, studying endangered marine mammals, um, but using a lot of the methods that I you know, learned as a PhD student. So lots of Bayesian modeling, lots of decision analysis and things like that. Um, you know, essentially lots of large, messy observational data sets where you want to build these, you know, sorts of Bayesian models that are really useful. Um, and then I, um, you know, I ended up transitioning from there to, to being an academic uh, in New Zealand for, for a few years. And, um, uh, and then, and then now uh, over at Vanderbilt. And so I, I did kind of the academic thing for uh, sort of a decade and a half and then decided recently to, to make a switch in, into industry. So, yeah, I work with uh, the New York Yankees in baseball operations and, and player development. Um, again, doing, you know, it's, it seems like a strange convoluted path going from marine mammal <laughs> biology to uh, biostatistics and then to baseball. Uh, but the common thread through all of that is, you know, probabilistic programming and dealing with large, messy observational data sets. Um, well, now I've got that in spades with baseball because it's all observational data. And now there's lots and lots and lots of it, which is why baseball teams are now looking for, you know, uh, people with these sorts of skills to be able to make sense of terabytes of data. So uh, so that's what I do now. I help help them win baseball games. And um, so probably almost everyone saw Moneyball, which is quite a few years old, which seemed to describe the initial waking up of that industry to, oh, wow, there's like actual data and we can do statistics to like make better decisions on and off the playing field. How has that sort of progressed from there to like to whatever state it is in now? Yeah, so that's that's typically the line you get when you when I tell people what I do, and it's you know, oh, you do you do Moneyball just like Moneyball, right. uh, and uh, that's you know that's partly part of the story for sure. We're we're kind of in the post Moneyball era now, so Moneyball was all about finding inefficiencies in the business of baseball operations and. and taking advantage of, um, of things that were undervalued uh, across the industry. And, and now it's sort of transitioned away from that towards um, exploiting the information that's now available in various 
uh, data sets that uh, some of which are available league-wide and others that individual teams have. And in, in particular, you get a lot of information from um, what is called StatCast data. So the league, you know, all the teams collect information from cameras and radar that follow both the ball, the ball uh, wherever it is on the field and the locations of the players on the field, uh, things like speed of the baseball and the uh, rotation and uh, uh, the angle that the ball leaves the bat, things like that. And so now you're, we're collecting uh, upwards of seven terabytes. We, by we, I mean uh, the entire league, not just the New York Yankees, uh, seven, about seven terabytes per game wow. of, of this data. And, and then individual teams... Uh, have their own data sets that they collect, um, which I'm not really at liberty to talk about. That's the that's been the main <laughs> the main difference between being an academic and and being a uh, a baseball analyst is that now it's completely been flipped on its head. Not only am I uh, no longer uh, encouraged to publish and talk about my work, now I'm by and large not allowed to talk about it. They prefer we not uh, say too much because. Of course, you're directly competing with everybody else, and uh, it is that it is an actual zero-sum game. Um, you're if you're winning, somebody else is losing, and so um, so all I can really say is I, I help them win baseball games. <laughs> all right, um, and uh, are you allowed to say whether you use PIMC and to what extent? Uh, yeah, I use so I use a variety of of, of tools there. Um, uh, I think across baseball, it's no no secret that R and Python. Just, just like most data science operations are kind of the, the ling, lingua franca of, uh, of data science. And so you, you see a lot of the same, same tools. Um, that Open source is, has very much taken hold, um, although there is some proprietary tools that, that teams use as well. And linking that back to our previous discussion about like the potential for big models, like is that something that would be like immediately useful to you or maybe useful soon to you just when you would say, okay, like now I could run a model 10 X the scale or hundred X the scale. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Big models and, and large data sets. Um, and be, because, you know, so, you know, not just speaking about baseball, but it's sort of observate large observational systems in general. Um, when you have more data, you can build more complex models, right? So if you have a very small data set, You're limited in the number of parameters you can estimate, and, and the best model you can build is a, is a small one. But when you have large data, uh, you don't you don't want to keep fitting small models to it. There's no point in doing that. And so you want to. There's always something else you want to know and estimate. And uh, typically, they're the things that sort of conf confound inference. Right. The reason that in observational data is not as good as experimental data is that there's there are no controls. There are, there. Are, um, There are a lot of confounding influences that generate that is the data generating mechanism, and as many of those as you can account for or estimate and model, then the better and more reliable your inference is going to be. So there's always more. Uh, there are always more opportunities as you get more data for estimating things you previously couldn't, and, and then making your your model better. I'm curious how big of a difference does that make that whole. Uh, modeling like um, if let's say we like the whole data science team at um, some baseball team would be fired tomorrow like would they continue to win games or would they just be completely 
blown out of the water? Like, what what is your sense of how big of a benefit that actually has? I think you know it's a very big benefit, and you know it's it's sort of like the the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland that you know you're, they're running. Everybody's running as fast as they can to stay in the same place. Uh, you know, you, it's not necessarily the fact that continuing to do this you know, maybe gives you a massive advantage, but if you stopped, you'd be so far behind that you wouldn't be able to compete. And so, uh, so there are sort of current, there are day-to-day things that it helps you with, but, but also, you know, it doesn't take more than a few percentage points of difference, you know, of, of improvement on some aspects, uh, of the operations to, to make a huge difference kind of in, in what you, what you observe and what you're able to achieve. So, on the other hand, though, that you know, one of the, the interesting differences with academia is, uh, you know, and I'm sure this is common to other industries as well, is that uh, at some point you you want to stop and have a product that gets used, and um, so continually iterating on something until it's perfect and accounts for every, you know, unobservable confounder uh, doesn't happen. At some point you have to stop and say it's good enough or I'm going to use an approximation rather than an exact method here because it's good enough uh, because we want to use it to make a decision and and improving it another 2% isn't going to help us make a better decision. So we're going to stop here. What has been your experience in like communicating the outputs of your model where like if you just show someone a posterior distribution, they would probably just stare back at you, right? Yeah, for this you don't even I don't even have to keep talking about baseball. I can even in my previous job as a biostatistician, uh, you know, I'm I was interacting with uh, physicians and epidemiologists and, and other scientists who were very 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 smart people, but you know weren't weren't statisticians and and certainly weren't Python programmers. So um, so yeah, the communication is always a challenge, and and a, you know to bring it back to Bayesian inference, I think that's a nice. Uh, positive byproduct or feature of of probabilistic programming is that because uh, the language of Bayesian inference is probability, that automatically gives you a little bit of an advantage when you're trying to explain it to someone because people understand probabilities kind of intuitively. They they often get get them wrong and aren't you know aren't able to use them uh, as they should, but at least probability is something that people recognize as opposed to, you know, regression coefficients or things like that. So, so taking advantage of that certainly helps uh, having, you know, distributions that you can show to people, visual outputs are, are useful. Um, you know, people will understand and, and, and kind of have an intuition about those sorts of products. Uh, and then, and then also, you know, embedding, whatever statistical model you're making in a decision uh, analytic framework is also very helpful. So what, what does this do? You know, how does this affect decision-making and being able to do that, I think is ultimately what you want. Cause that's why we build these models and uh, do all of, all of this data analysis is to help us make better decisions. And so if you can do that explicitly, that also is helpful, right? If you, when you get, when the output of your, analysis is a p-value, it's not always clear how that p-value will change my decision or even how I integrate that into decision-making. Um, whereas, you know, taking a, you know, a Bayesian approach, for example, it, it's very easy to incorporate 
decisions into the into the modeling framework. So so doing that really helps people if you have, they have a way of of integrating the decision they have to make with the the analytic product that you're generating. Uh, you know, will go a long way to having it uh, be used ultimately. Yeah, I completely agree. Based on decision making has been like for me the missing link in many ways to where you spend a lot of time building all these models and then you uh, the output would be a probability that people might look at but might ignore and still do what they were doing regardless of that model. But then already like having a loss function and integrating your posterior distribution with that loss function and providing like the optimal decision, people might still not do the decision, but at least it's much more actionable. So sure. that, uh, yeah, is, is a really important point. Yeah. And, and you can iterate too. So, you know, if this implies that my best action is going to be that, well, that doesn't look right. I would not do that. that. That's some feedback. That's some iteration, right? It's okay. Well, something's wrong here. It could be with my objective function. It could be with my model. And so, you know, you can involve these stakeholders in the modeling process that way a little bit more. Um, but also the other aspect to the communication is the technical side, right? So how do you get output uh, and, and modeling results to an audience. And, and of course, some of the things that have been helpful for me and others are uh, advances along the lines of Jupyter Notebooks and Jupyter Lab. Um, you know, almost everything that I do uh, past and present for the past five years or so has, you know, the output has been a, a Jupyter Notebook, which is great because you can, you know, share it with somebody as an HTML output in a static form that they could read just like a report uh, or it can be runnable if you want to run it on Colab or, or something else like that. And so that's been helpful, too, because some of these folks, again, who are you know scientists, but not necessarily uh, technical scientists, uh, you might have code there that's scary. But if you annotate it with, oh, you know, in this cell, I'm trying to do this. And in this next cell, I'm, I'm, I'm modifying it in this way. Then at least they can follow your logic and see what you're doing. And you've kind of opened the black box there a little bit. So I think tools like Jupyter have been great for, for being able to share this stuff and, and, you know, Docker. So you can, you know, take your whole model and if somebody wants to, they can run it on their, on their machine uh, with a little bit of handholding. Um, so again, we have some nice kind of technologies now that make uh, that transition, that translation from, you know, model building step to communication step a little bit uh, less, uh, be a little bit less of an obstruction there. Right. And uh, then it probably also helps with uh, remote collaboration, right? So you li still live in Nashville, uh, but obviously the New York mm -hmm. Yankees are not uh, stationed in, in Nashville. So you're full-time remote there? I am, yeah. I, wor I work here, you know, 90% of the time, but then I'm also traveling uh, to New York a couple times a year and, and down to Tampa, where we have um, some player development facilities, uh, but you know most of the work I do here in my uh, my little my at my little desk at WeWork. Nice. And how has how how has your experience been in that regard? Just remote collaboration and remote teams, which is definitely a theme that I think is becoming more common. Yeah, it's uh, you know it's it's a blessing and a curse, right? There are there are, are trade offs. With you know being in an office, um, you know it's it's hard it's, it's harder to collaborate with people. So, in, in, particularly if you're a scientist, it can be difficult 
not having the water cooler discussions and impromptu meetings that, you know, can be bad, but are often enlightening and useful. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, I have a lot of time to myself that I can actually, you know, get uh, work done and I'm, I'm not pulled into meetings and things like that. So, so it's been good. Overall, it's been good, but I do like, you know, I do like to travel up there a few times a year to, to actually talk to people in person. Um, uh, so, but I think, you know, these, with some of these tools like Slack and, and GitHub and so on, it's made, uh, companies have access to people that they might not have had access to before that were, you know, not able to, or not willing to move to a particular location. And what you're actually seeing here in Nashville is a, is a, a big influx of, of mm-hmm. folks who, you know, might've lived in New York or Chicago or places like that, but, uh, you know, they don't, they don't have to sp- spend that kind of money to be where the action is anymore because most of this work can be done remotely, particularly if you're a data scientist and certainly if you're a, a software developer. So you're, we are seeing a lot of people moving into town, people, people that Pythonistas might uh, recognize. So if people want to follow you on Twitter or social media, where could they find you? Uh, so the nice thing about having an unusual last name like mine is that I, I can typically just have my last name as my handle. So uh, uh, on Twitter, I'm just Fonsbeck, and on GitHub, I'm Fonsbeck, uh, and on Gmail, I'm Fonsbeck. So any of those, uh, I'd be happy to hear from from anyone that's interested in learning more about um, PyMC and and probabilistic programming. Fantastic! Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Thomas, and good luck with the podcast going forward. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye for now. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. If you would like to support the podcast and allow me to make more of these episodes, you can do so via my Patreon page. Uh, it's patreon.com slash twiki, T-W-I-E-C-K-I. If you want to follow me on Twitter, that's the same handle, twiki. And I also have a blog on twiki.io where I blog about all things based in statistics and data science. So thank you so much for listening.